Uh, hey, listeners, before we begin, uh, the last episode that we published, the one with Art Hare and uh, Tour de Giro, uh, you probably noticed some um, some noise on the audio lines, uh, especially on Andrew's uh, on Andrew's channel. And we're not exactly sure what, what that was, but we were goofing around with a, uh, a beta version of our recording software. So that's possibly what it was, although it didn't affect the rest of us. Um, anyway, just know that it's solved and we uh, we sound a whole lot better in this episode. Yeah, it's 2001 Space Odyssey where there's the the computer Hal. It's like, Michael, I can't let you do that. <laughs> Michael, I can't let you eat that. <laughs> I fuck, man. I need a Hal like that. That's what I really need. <laughs> if somebody, okay, listeners, if you're out there and you're inventing something to tell me not to eat that, I will buy it from you because that's what I need. Just get a shot collar and give Diana the controls. <laughs> Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Endurance Innovation. And this episode is kind of uh, inspired by real life events. which I feel like is the kind of the tagline that you see on some cheesy reality shows. But uh, <laughs> in this case, we're looking at the impact of forest fires um, and, and how that can actually affect your health. And especially where possible, we're trying to find out, was there an impact on athletic performance? Because almost everyone in North America has recently been affected by the forest fires in California. And I think that they are among the highest measured in the last hundred years. So it's been pretty severe, and this is my first experience with any any smoke from forest fires, but from what I understand, it's actually a very common occurrence in Calgary because we get a lot of the, um, the, the winds from California bringing smoke up, or we have the forest fires from BC, and there can be hundreds or thousands of small fires, but they all tend to accumulate just um, and spread out after the mountains. So there's quite often a bit of a haze in the air, so... It, it really brought up the question, is it dangerous to exercise in these conditions? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. Obviously, super topical. And for my own, uh, you know, two cents, we we saw there were a couple of days, um, I want to say in August or whenever the, the peak of the wildfires were, that uh, we saw the, the haze, you know, the sun looked a little bit reddish and the sky looked a little bit dull uh, in, in Toronto. So I couldn't, you couldn't, you know... Uh, smell it or taste it but that's not to say that there was no low level particulate but it also could have been you know quite high up in the atmosphere and not really affecting kind of the breathable air quality for us but i remember when um when uh, my partner and i were traveling through australia before we were you know all serious and and be kittled um we we were there during the the period before the last, before like the, the fires and I don't know, time doesn't make sense anymore. 2019, whenever the last really bad Australian wildfires were, we were there in 2009 when they had a really bad, bad bout and we were pretty close to the, to the fires then. And it, you could definitely, you know, feel the, feel the smoke and taste it. And, and it wasn't the kind of, uh, you know, it certainly wasn't nice to be outside in those conditions then. 
No, it definitely hits home. And when you see a haze set in on you, um, especially when it becomes very obstructive to to seeing anything, you can you can taste it. It smells like a campfire. It kind of tastes like a campfire. And if you can only see a hundred meters or less, um, it never got that bad for me this year. But in the past, I know it's gotten well below that, where it just feels like a fog. Uh, that's definitely not something I would want to be exercising in. So. Um, so thinking of all these questions and like, what is the long-term impact of it really brought about this episode. So we dug in, did a little bit of research, um, and it's, uh, it's admittedly from people who are myself and Michael, who are not experts in the field. So I'm doing my best to interpret the findings of papers, but it was pretty interesting. Um, and the, the reason I say that is because there was a lack of information about any kind of exercise or long-term effects of, of the smoke. Yeah, it looks like a lot of the um, a lot of the studies were looking at um, the the populations at large, as well as the you know the folks who are immediately dealing with the fires, and those are the firefighters, and that makes a ton of sense, right? Because it's 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 tough to you know it's tough to do <laughs> say like a rigorous you know typical the typical gold standard double blind study <laughs> with something like smoke inhalation for a whole number of reasons. First of all, you can't blind the participant. You know, it's like either there's smoke or there ain't no smoke. Um, but also it's, you know, you'd have massive ethics issues with, uh, <laughs> with dosing people with, uh, with potentially harmful, you know, uh, particulates. So maybe let's start off the discussion looking at the air quality index, because I know this is something that I've seen on the Weather Network website or weather.com mm-hmm. when you look at the U.S. And it's interesting because everyone seems to, every jurisdiction seems to use a different scale. Huh. Um, there's always some scientific basis, but... I was fascinated by the differences because you can't just go to the U.S. and assume that it's the same scale as Canada. It's significantly different. Interesting. And one thing that you you, you mentioned that doesn't, uh, it, you know, it makes sense once you you know once you hear it, but it wasn't something that was that was you know obvious to me at first glance was the fact that the air quality index is actually made up of uh, a whole kind of spectrum of pollutants, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the the Canadian is it's very simplified. Uh, it's a rating from one to ten, okay. where one is low risk, and then as you get up past three, they they indicate consider reducing or rescheduling strenuous activities outdoors uh, for at risk populations, symptoms. right? Oh, sorry, yes, at risk populations. It, general population is no need to modify. Um, if you get above six, that's when it goes to. For the at-risk population, just reduce or avoid any kind of activity. Um, and then for general population, they say consider reducing. Mm-hmm. And then you go up to very high, so 10 or above. Um, it's For me, it's interesting that they have a scale from 1 to 10 and then an above <laughs> 10 category. So. <laughs> well, you know what? Look, it seems that, that seems to be the trend in, in recent yeah. kind of environmental data is that they have to, you know, they like in like in Spinal Tap, they have to keep going to 11. Yeah. yeah turn it up to 11. Yeah. That's what the air pollution can be sometimes. Sounds like it. Uh, so there, there's actually a mathematical formulation for this, and it takes into account several different factors. So I think it was the concentration of oxygen, the concentration of nitric oxide, so NO2, mm-hmm. um, and then the concentration of the the mass of the particulate matter. Um, and the, the particulate matter is interesting because it can be broken down into three different categories. Okay. So in this case, they use the two and a half micron, which is the one that is most impactful at the the small scale of the lungs um there's the three general particulate matter um 
definitions that you see are PM10, which is 10 micron. And this is considered coarse particulate material. Um, and a lot of this comes from fires, but it's uh, it can affect asthmatics, but it doesn't necessarily have as much of an impact on the general population. Oh, okay. Interesting. The PM2.5 is the one that can be dangerous because it gets further and deeper into the lungs and that actually affects the, the gas exchange regions. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a two and a half micron. And that's just because it can basically block up the chemical mass transfer that's going on oh, wow. okay. between the blood and the lungs. Um, where asthmatics, if they've got some constriction, it may block the constriction slightly um, or contribute to the constriction. But uh, for the general population, it may not be small enough to get into those uh, gas exchange regions. Interesting. The, the scary one for me is the PM 0.1. So the 0.1 microns, which are basically nanoparticles. Uh, they go right into your blood. <laughs> so they, they don't stop at the lungs. They can get through to other organs. And it's not fully understood what, uh, what happens with them. And it can depend on what chemistry the particles have. Sure. But it's kind of scary when you get particulate that ends up in your muscles <laughs> or wherever. Yeah, right. Um, because it's, it's so small that it's, it's yeah, below the, the cell region uh, or the, the cell size. Um, so it's scary. Um, it worries me thinking about some of that stuff. And the PM 0.1, I could be wrong on this because this is just going from memory, but I think that's, um, it's considered fly ash, which is for uh, a lot of coal power plants. This is one of the byproducts that they have. So they finally grind the coal before they use it for power generation. And sure. they have to be very careful. Or improved it. combustion probably, right? Pardon me? Uh, to improve combustion? Yes. Yeah. So the, the small, small scale particles, um, you get more surface area, so more, yep. more chance for reaction going on. But uh, the, the byproduct is the, the smaller exhaust particles. So you have to be able to filter that out of the, the combustion process or else if this gets into the air, this can have a potentially significant, but also not fully understood impact on the population. Hmm. Interesting. So it's a little scary. Yeah. So with all of this, with all of this stuff flying around, what um, in the papers that you read, and what can we start, you know, making generalizations about? What you know, at what point do we need to be worried? Like, there's obviously, I mean, we're gonna go out and say this right away because I think it's, you know, we've heard it a lot recently, but it's it's worth it's worth saying that uh, that you know you should always follow your local public health guidelines, and if public health is telling you, you know, it's too smoky to be doing your your four hour bike ride today, then probably a good idea to stick with that with that advice but uh what's uh what 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 can we see in the literature from the the studies that have been done so the the closest thing i could find that related specifically to athletics was looking at uh which sounds like a an awesome profession to brag about in a bar but uh smoke jumpers so firefighters (laughs) who parachute into a fire oh nice Uh, and if if that's not hardcore i don't know what is but um, some of the tests that they have are actually pretty surprising. So they, they have to be able to run, uh, I think it was 2.5K in 11 minutes, which is getting to a pretty good pace. Like that's- um, Is that in full gear? Of, I don't think it's in full gear, but they do say, have some- I was going to say, because that's like, that would be tough. Their, their full gear test was, I think, hiking 4.6 kilometers in 45 minutes with okay. 20.5 kilograms of gear on your back, Oh, that's, um, yeah. which would not be easy either. So no. it's, it's a tough combination of strength and endurance um, because these guys, once you're in, like there is no pulling out. You've got a, you're self-sufficient at that point. Um, huh. It's not like you can jump back up to the plane. So yeah. 
um, yeah, they need need to have a lot of athletic abilities to be these uh, the smoke jumpers. So th- this is the closest I could find relating to directly to athletes. But uh, what they typically found was during the um, during the actual season, the fire season, there was a slight reduction in their lung volume. Um, so there's a couple different ways they measure this, and basically the exhalation volume, forced exhalation volume over one second. Okay. Yeah. Um, so the FEV one decreases uh, over time as you're um, as you're exposed to this particulate, and that's because it's causing inflammation, which that should be the first sign that something bad is happening. Um, and, and surely they know it. Um, and it's just a, a risk that firefighters, uh, they accept and take on. But um, for the general population, if, if these firefighters are admittedly at much higher concentrations, they're experiencing some inflammation. You would also expect that there would be some level of inflammation, whether it's significant or measurable is another question, but there will likely be some inflammation uh, for the general population, if you're exposed to enough smoke, sure. So, and this, it's probably not too much of a reach to assume that you know all other effects aside, just having that inflammation is going to have some kind of at least acute negative effects, right? So, like even if it dies down over time and there are no chronic concerns, that at least in the short term you're going to have issues with at least being able to perform during your you know during your workouts yeah and that was one of the conclusions of one of these review papers that had taken a whole bunch of different studies in different places ranging from Australia that you mentioned to BC to California and they they had found that there were both acute respiratory and acute cardiovascular effects um, mostly the respiratory effects are strong evidence of this okay yeah um, so there was a correlation with the onset of COPD which let's see if I can pronounce this. Uh, it's <laughs> chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Um, so maybe not that hard on the tongue, but it's difficult to remember for <laughs> a non-medical person like me. Acronyms. But, yeah. <laughs> Basically, uh, um, it just means you can't breathe as, as easily. Uh, and there's different levels of severity, but it's restrict- restricted breathing. Um, so the obstruction part of that is what you're feeling. Sure. Uh, so it's hard to fill your lungs. It's hard to exhale. Um, not a pleasant thing. Um, and extreme cases I've, I've heard described to me as breathing through a straw. And that's something that gives me a claustrophobic feeling, um, just thinking about that. So anyone who's going through that, that's, I mean, it's, it's not something I would want to inflict upon myself if I had the choice. <laughs> yeah, so no kidding. exposing yourself to, um, to this particulate, um, basically... It, it is correlated with the onset of COPD, um, but it's also, it creates an immune response um, and inflammation in the lungs. So, and it's basically a bronchoconstrictor. So your your lungs or the, the bronchial tubes are um, constricting and reducing diameter. Hmm. So you can't get as much air in and out. And I don't know the exact physical reasons or physiological reasons for this, but, um, but it's not something that... Uh, that I would want to risk. So yeah, it's a lot of this is starting to hit pretty close to home sure. uh, because of the exposure here. So in this, uh, in this paper that you sent me, there is, um, it looks like, as you, as you mentioned, the, the strongest evidence is for the acute respiratory, uh, reaction. Mm-hmm. And then there is some evidence, but it's weak about, of the acute cardiovascular reaction. So that's of course having to do with your, uh, with your heart. Um, and then there is not enough evidence to conclude, at least according to the authors of this paper, that there was any kind of 
um, chronic respiratory or chronic cardiovascular impact. Um, so then, you know, sometimes you, you see that and you may, you know, especially as a type A kind of triathlete, want to conclude that, yeah, you know, look, it's, there's, there's no reason to believe that this is going to harm me long term. So I'm going to go out and do it. Um, and that means, you know, train, train through these kind of conditions. But then I would kind of, you know, putting my coach hat on, I would say, if you're experiencing acute symptoms, even if they're not very severe, um, the odds of you being able to produce the kind of workout or, or achieve the kind of workout targets that you've got in mind for that session with that acute, um, you know, symptom, acute lung symptoms is much reduced, right? Like you're not likely to be able to get the effect of your training that you wanted to uh, with these symptoms. And even though there's no strong evidence of, of chronic disease, that doesn't also mean that there is no, no risk of chronic disease, right? That doesn't, it, the, this, the lack of evidence does not disprove a possibility, right? <laughs> yeah. It's just saying it hasn't been studied enough. Right. Um, so I would definitely err on the side of caution for this. And it could be just that maybe no one's been paying attention to it for long enough and they don't sure. have these long-term studies for firefighters. Um, or maybe they only do one or two instances of, of doing the, the woodland firefighting. But I would assume it's mostly the same, uh, or at least there's some similarities, if not worse impacts from fighting house fires where you have more synthetic materials and plastics that are burning, um, which can have their own toxins associated with them and can be a little bit nastier than maybe the, the, uh, uh, the purely biomass-based fires. But I, I don't think anyone wants to be exposed to either of those. Right. So another interesting impact, and this is more related to the cardiovascular side of things, but uh, there was another study that found that the central arterial stiffness was, um, so basically your, your blood vessel stiffness was um, increased, um, which is usually not a good sign. Um, and it's, it also correlated with uh, an increase in heart rate variability, but they didn't find any effect or any measurable effect on blood pressure. Interesting. Um, and that was for one hour following exposure to wood smoke um, as opposed to filtered air. So uh, even, even a small exposure, um, it shows up in heart rate variability. And we've discussed this many times before. It's usually an indication um, decreased heart rate variability is uh, an indication of stress on your body. Yeah, some kind of global so, stress. Yeah, yeah. So for me, this is kind of um, it's an indirect measurement that something is happening. Um, yeah, and that doesn't surprise me at all, right? I mean, heart rate variability can drop, or you know, your your autonomic function can be altered from its homeostasis for any number of reasons, like eating a big meal, mm -hmm. right? Um, and it's 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 not at all a surprise that that a process that triggers, you know, inflammation in your lungs would, would have your body responding. I mean, inflammation itself is a, is a immune response, right? So it's, there is some kind of response happening to, to this foreign particulate in the body. And that's, um, it stands to reason that heart rate variability would be, would be lower, um, as a result of that response, or, or rather it would be an indication that there is a response ongoing. Yeah. So listen to your body, I think is, is what a lot of it comes down to. There's a lot of different indicators that you may be putting yourself through something unhealthy with, with these conditions. And fortunately, a lot of the, the smoke has dissipated now and we're getting colder weather here. Um, in fact, it, we got, uh, we got about five centimeters of snow the other day. No, um, so welcome to winter in October. Um, it's, but, it's 17 degrees and sunny in, in Toronto, Andrew. Yeah. You don't need to tell me that. That's fine. <laughs> I was happy not knowing that. <laughs> um, 
but uh, a lot of the smoke has dissipated from the air. Um, and the reality is it probably hasn't dissipated. It's just dispersed. Mm. I remember hearing a an adage that is mostly shown to be false, but it was uh, what engineers and, and pollution control used to live by. But uh, the solution to pollution is dilution. Yeah, I've um, heard that, so yeah. So basically, yeah, you spread it out more and no one notices. Uh, um, and that's the same as the blue sky theory with air um, air traffic, where when planes first started flying across North, across North America, no one thought there would ever be enough air traffic that it was worth concerning about. Um, but eventually we got there. And likewise, with all the, the carbon, uh, the carbon that we're burning and the carbon dioxide being produced, um, that is eventually adding up. And there's a huge body of evidence to prove that, despite some people's resistance to it. Yeah. Um, but uh, the, the fact of the matter is there's a lot of scientific evidence to support this. And part of it is contributed by increased amount of forest fires. And because of the drought conditions that we're seeing in California and in some places in BC and even in Alberta, there's more forest fires, which means there's more carbon particulate going into the air, which means it's less and less safe to exercise outside. Mm-hmm. So it's it all adds up. It's all, you know, we're, we're making the bed for ourselves. Um, yeah, sadly, that seems to be the case. It's uh, you know, and uh, you you mentioned the fact that a lot of the carbon is coming from from forest fires, and that's of course because you know vegetation is one of the best carbon sinks that we have. Um, just listening to an awesome podcast that I really like, ninety nine percent invisible, and their latest episode was about peat, which apparently is like is way more efficient than than forests at uh, at uh, sequestering carbon, which is super cool, and I didn't know that, but. Uh, Excellent podcast, by the way, folks. If you if you're nerds of like architecture and design and stuff, ninety nine percent invisible, shameless or not shameless because I have nothing, no skin in that game. <laughs> Free plug for them. Um, but yeah, the fact that forest fires release a lot of carbon is because that's where we, you know, we, I don't want to say try, but the the, the uh, planet Earth tries to sequester carbon in its in its living species, you know, and it's in the things that are alive. Um, or the things that are buried in the ground, and uh, and when you burn those things, be they trees in a wood stove or a, trees in a forest fire or fossil fuels, yeah, of course the natural kind of consequence of that is that you're going to be taking that carbon from its from its you know sequestered state into and then pumping it into our atmosphere. Yep. Yeah, and it's um, it is an interesting perspective to look at because we've got um, well looking at the cycle, the carbon cycle, um, it all does get recycled at some point, but we're artificially pumping it into the atmosphere where we're mining up all this oil, we're um, burning all these trees and processing them. And even if trees are a renewable energy source, we're just pushing the same amount of carbon back into the atmosphere. Um, So we may sequester it in trees and then essentially just recycle it back to the atmosphere when we burn those trees. We liberate energy that's coming in in the form of solar energy, but it's still... Um, it's still a problem. So it's about flow to, rates, right? It's about how, like yeah, what yeah. what rate are you sequestering it versus you know pumping it back into the atmosphere? Like if you look at historic kind of geological uh, carbon dioxide levels, I, I don't know my geological era as well, but like you know many millions of years ago when there was a lot more volcanic activity, maybe billion years ago, the CO two in the atmosphere was much much higher than it even is today. And yes, the the planet was a lot warmer as a result. But that that you know that was because we were you know there was more produced than sequestered and now or not produced but broken down let's say than than sequestered and then now it's we're we're starting to do that a little bit again except this time it's you know 
human caused. I get the sense that we're veering slightly off topic. Slightly off topic. Yeah, let's let's get back let's get back on track, Andrew. So, I w- what I was going to ask when I interrupted you the f- in the first place was, um, now that we know this, is there anything we can do other than like move to the east coast and then be flooded out rather than be burnt out? Sorry, last yeah, last right. global warming. <laughs> thing yeah you'll be underwater in five years yep um yeah so this is something i i researched because i was kind of concerned about it and i noticed when i had the windows open here that there was a nice layer well not nice but there was a definite layer of dust uh especially when when there was a lot of smoke so i i researched hepa filters and um uh, looking at what kind of air filtration you can get so the, the one that uh, I ended up going with is uh, it's rated HEPA H13. Um, and what that does is it travel, it travels, it traps 99.95% of particles um, that are 0.1 microns and larger. So that's an incredibly effective way to remove a lot of this particulate from the air. Hmm. Um, unfortunately, that's not uh, not particularly cheap, and you have to have a lot of air exchange. Yeah. So a lot of the household filters that you get are HEPA type, but because of their installation, because of how the furnace is constructed, there's not a great seal. So it's it's much much lower than the ninety nine point nine five percent. So you almost need a purpose built filter system for that, uh, which would be much more expensive. That's more something that you'd have in a hospital or even aircraft use a similar system to filter out a lot of the, the bacterial uh, contaminants from the air. Mm-hmm. So it is possible, but um, you need to make sure that if you are going to exercise, um, maybe having a separate room that's closed and running the filter before you actually exercise to cycle the air a few times in the room, um, that would be a good first step to make sure that the air that you're breathing in is actually much more, much healthier for you. Um, it's not going to deposit these particulate, uh, this particulate matter in your lungs. Right. So then the kind of the, the obvious take takeaway there is you want to do this at home. You don't want to, you know, you kind of want to avoid the outdoor exercise as much as you can and, yes, and yeah. be in that controlled, controlled, uh, environment. Yeah. I jumped right past that. Cause I was assuming in my <laughs> head, why would anyone go outside in those conditions? But that's the inner triathlete in me. Just assuming people are happy to train indoors. Yeah. Well, not yet. It's well, not while it's still 17 and sunny. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, fortunately, it's not smoky now. But yeah, the, the general consensus or the general feeling that I have is I would err on the side of caution for a lot of these regulations because they're they're looking at um, basically, you know, is it going to make you go to the hospital? And for most people, it's not really. But in reality, the inflammation could be decreasing your cardiac output for as much as three months after exposure. So the reality is that you could um, you could be doing more long-term harm by getting in that extra workout outdoors rather than skipping it all together or moving yourself indoors. So um, whether or not it's chronic, where you would experience the same impact the, the following year or two years down the road, or if it's just the acute within two to three months, mm-hmm. um, again, we said there's not enough evidence to to really say one way or another, but... Um, but I would definitely err on the side of caution. So I would almost look at it from the point of the at-risk uh, population. So when you look at these air quality index ratings, um, if you have somewhere like the moderates so of four to six rating in the uh, Canadian scale, I would follow, you know, consider reducing or rescheduling strenuous activities. So that's where I'd reschedule to indoors. And that's that's the guidance for at risk as opposed to general population. Mm-hmm. 
but I would still err on the side of at risk just because you're inhaling so much more air, you're processing more through your lungs, you're potentially depositing so much more particulate matter because you're doing a four hour ride now. And that's not really what those guidelines are meant to address. Yeah, I, I agree. I think I think you make really two really good points. The fact that the obvious one is that, you know, our um, cardiac output, but also our, you know, uh, our lung the you know the pro, the amount of volume the the volume of air that we process when we're training or active obviously is much higher so there's a, a greater likelihood that you're going to be coating your lungs more in this stuff if you are if you are active um, um, potentially going even deeper into your lungs which is you know an area that's harder to clear uh, lower down in the lungs um, and also the fact that and I'm I'm a huge fan of of being conservative on this. Is that it's not you know your two or three workouts that you're going to get done in this in this you know potentially contaminated polluted time are not worth uh, potentially months of uh, of substandard performance. Like even if you know even if all you do is take off the top five percent and you're at ninety five percent of your capacity or ninety percent of your capacity for three months, is it you know if it, would you, would that be worth it to do a week's worth of already compromised workouts. And my opinion, obviously it's no, and I'm making up numbers. I fully admit that. I have no idea what the the real numbers are, but there is, there's a clear evidence of some kind of uh, effect and whether or not it lasts a few weeks or a few months, we don't know that, but um, it, it's there and it's, it's just, it just seems to be a silly risk to take. Yeah. So I guess the, the final takeaway is just um, be on the conservative side when it comes to smoke. Um, just like you wouldn't want to hang around secondhand smoke while you were training. Um, you probably don't want to be training in forest fire smoke either. Right. Right. Awesome. Well, I think that's, that's, you know, super useful. Stay indoors folks, buy a, buy an expensive filter, make sure it's installed properly. And then uh, try to do your training in that, in those conditions with closed, uh, with a closed uh, system so that you're not, mm-hmm. or at least a filtrated system. So you're not breathing this stuff in. Um, moving on, we, um, you know what, listeners, we love you because we, we have the kind of listeners that, that send us corrections and that's, that means that you're paying attention. Cause look, if, if nobody was listening, then nobody would be telling us that we got stuff wrong. <laughs> and then it's, it's, it's much nicer for me to know that, that folks are listening and paying attention. So if we, if we screwed something up and, uh, and we absolutely have from time to time and we will continue to do so, you have my word. Um, uh, please do send us a correction. And so this one comes from, uh, from Nicholas, uh, who emailed me last week, uh, telling me that we got, uh, a math mistake wrong on, uh, some aerodynamic math from our episode on tri bike versus road bike. Um, and I fully, so Andrew did the math, but I take the responsibility for this one because, <laughs> because very early on in our show, we made, we made a pledge to you listeners that we would never do math on air. And it seems like every episode or every other episode I come up with like my brain says like, Oh, I wonder about this. And I ask Andrew to do kind of math, like aerodynamic <laughs> math on his laptop while we're recording. And he's like, you can hear him clicking numbers. Um, and so, and, and so, possibly you know, swearing under my breath, <laughs> <laughs> possibly swearing under his breath. So we got this one wrong and we want to, we want to correct it. Yeah. And it's, um, yeah, it's an easy enough mistake to make, but it's still embarrassing from my standpoint, seeing as that it's aerodynamics. But um, I think the number that we were looking at was the CDA comparison between a tri bike and a road bike uh, with the rider, correct? Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah. the, the CDA was like 0.21. That's that's a that's a very aero cyclist, not 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 a bike on its own. So I think the the number that I quoted was something like a 16 watt difference that you would need to go from. 
uh, tri bike to a road bike. And Nicholas pointed out that in reality, it was actually much larger. I think it was it was between a very fast tri bike. I think, but like was because the numbers were the CDA values were 0.21 and 0.24. And I don't know anybody riding a road bike unless like maybe in the drops really low, kind of Eddie Merckxing a time trial who's going to be 0.24 on a road bike, maybe, but unlikely, right? Yeah. So yeah, that's probably true. Like 0.27 is usually more normal for road bikes. So yeah, yeah. For the, the fast 0.3 for slower. this guy over here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, we won't make any personal judgments. Fine. But uh, it's just the extra COVID weight. <laughs> um, but the uh, I think the the number that we should have been quoting was a difference of about 240 watts versus the uh, what was the baseline again? 210. Um, yeah. So it was. Yeah, it should have been quite a bit higher, almost double the difference that we quoted. So, um, so that was just a mistake on my part, just uh, punching numbers into the calculator wrong. But uh, the power at a fixed speed, the power will vary more or less by the change in CDA. So if you double CDA, you're going to take twice as much wattage at the same speed. Um, yeah, it's fairly linear, right? Yeah, the only nonlinear part of that or the, the contributing part to that is the... Um, the impact of rolling resistance. So it's another term in the equation. So it's not quite doubling, like your rolling resistance won't change significantly if your CDA changes. Um, but aside from that, like most of your drag comes from the CDA anyway. Um, mm -hmm. So that that component is definitely the most impactful. But uh, anyway, I made a mistake on the calculation there. So, um, so it's always nice to have someone point it out to us because I don't want to be putting false information out there. I'd rather have to go on and do this public service announcement to correct my <laughs> mistakes than then live with the embarrassment of knowing that I had made a math mistake. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, as I said, listeners, we love this kind of stuff. Um, it's, it's actually, you know, I've said this in the past. It's, it's more satisfying when we had Pierre on, well, it's more satisfying for me personally to learn something new. In this case, I didn't necessarily learn something new other than we really shouldn't be doing math on the air. <laughs> but uh it was uh it's always yeah it's it we want to present the correct information i totally agree with him mm -hmm. and i think you had another point to to make as well yeah i uh i wanted to uh do a little plug for a friend of the show and uh past guest erica gavel who was uh uh who came on to talk about her study um in in the the effects of a a drink and I was, um, oh, can I think of the substance <laughs> menthol? Thank you. Menthol, a menthol mouth rinse. It wasn't a drink I'm getting it all wrong. Eric, I'm sorry. I'm going to get it right. Um, so it was a menthol I'm mouth rinse. Alcohol can make you yeah. faster. <laughs> wood alcohol. What al yeah. Menthol drinking menthol is not going to make you faster. That's just going to make you blind and dead. So don't do that. Don't drink menthol. Um, but you can definitely rinse your mouth with it as, uh, as Erica, uh, study presented to some, some, uh, pretty cool effect actually. Um, but, uh, she's got another, was that a pun? Was it? What did I say? A pretty cool effect. Oh no. We, I, I think we've, I think we've said that we can't use cool as a pun anymore. Cause just, it's so, oh, okay. so close to our, you know, to what we're doing with, with heat transfer. I, stay, I, I think we should still try and claim, okay. Fair <laughs> enough. claim anything related to that. But, uh, <laughs> anyway, I totally derailed you there. Go ahead. <laughs> no problem. So yeah. Um, Erica we, is, uh, is doing another study, um, at the, uh, Ontario tech university for which she needs participants. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put a link to her, um, her contact information and the description of the study. Um, and, uh, if you are interested and are able to, to attend, it is, I, I do believe it is an, an, an in-person kind of affair. 
um, with full COVID precautions in place, I'm sure, um, then um, you you will be helping science and helping a friend of ours and uh, doing something really neat. I'm going to avoid saying that other word now. Yeah, and I would I would really recommend that um, you know, despite the stigma of getting involved in a medical experiment, <laughs> um, it was actually a pretty neat experience. Um, I voted saying cool there, but uh, it was a pretty neat experience to to do the heat study previously when I was involved with that. Even though it was it was not fun at the time, I enjoyed the ability to to get in there and to test something where you know it's helping science and it's helping understand your own physiology. Because sometimes you get bonuses, like depending on the study, you might get your VO2 max measured, mm-hmm. you might get uh, something like body composition measured, which is normally a paid service. So you get that kind of stuff for free potentially, but you also get to help someone out, out who's trying to advance exercise science. That's right. Yeah. I was just reading the description and you are getting a, uh, you're getting, uh, your fitness testing, uh, results analyzed with a sports scientist, which they're claiming is worth about $700, which we, which means to me that I'm undercharging my, the folks that I test. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, I can't call myself a sports scientist though. So maybe it's all in the name. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'm also going to self-correct because I just, conf- I just conflated menthol and methanol. So it's the methanol that makes oh. you blind and dead. Don't drink that. Yes. Menthol. I think you probably, I actually don't know. So, you know, read the, read the labels, but probably not great to drink. Probably not. If great it's in drink. mouthwash, they don't recommend drinking. Yeah. That. But it's probably not going to kill you. So see, see how quickly we, you know, you, you, you make us correct ourselves and now we're like self-censoring as we go. So I was watching your back. That's it. Yeah. Menthol, menthol is probably okay. Methanol, definitely not okay. But that's not what Eric is studying anyway. I don't know how we got off completely <laughs> off the rails here. I think it was my fault. <laughs> Maybe. So yeah. So reach out to Erica. She's super great. And um and she will uh she she needs your your help because these studies are notoriously small sample size typically, so that the more folks that she has to um, to evaluate, then the more robust her results are. And then we're, we're all the richer for it. And then we have her back on the podcast and she shares her results. And then you guys can go out and, uh, you know, be, be better prepared for the heat in this case. And I would say that, um, especially to people who are not the typical study participants. So most studies in the 70s and 80s and 90s were college age males. Um, typically white, because that was who was available for studies and that's who volunteered. So don't think that you have to be an elite athlete or have to be particularly young or anything like that. It's it's all types of athletes that usually they're looking for in these studies and the greater cross-section, the better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I, uh, I'm just trying to look at to see who, who specifically that they're, they're trying to target. Um, uh, between 19 and 40, two years of cycling experience, um, during the winter. So it doesn't, uh, it doesn't specify the, the gender of the individual. So it looks like they're looking for folks of all genders, um, between 19 and 40, which is a better hurry scurry or I'm going to be out. I put myself out of this category soon. Um, so yeah, so go out and, uh, go out and help Erica. That's, that's the bottom line here. All right. And was there anything else that, uh, that you wanted to cover today? No, I think that that's a good wrap. So as always, everyone, thank you very much for listening and writing in with your comments and corrections. Uh, if you like the show, do rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your friends. And as John Thornham of The Flow Podcast, another plug, tells us to, uh, if you learned something new today, tell a friend. Because that's, that's probably the best way to, to spread knowledge. 
Um, if you really like the show, also consider supporting us on Patreon. We're now on uh, Patreon at patreon.com slash endurance innovation. Give us a few bucks a month. It'll help us make the show. Thanks for listening. I was actually talking to Phil White about this and he was saying that he's had friends who have had custom bikes and they go to the police auctions or like to identify it. And the police say, you need to prove that it's yours. And he tries to, and they're like, no, that's not sufficient. We're going to auction it off. Oh, that sucks. Like what would they, what would you need? Like uh, the serial number? Yeah. So yeah, that's um, one of the things that we could do. So just taking a picture with you and the bike so that it can be identified and you can show that, yes, I've had this in my possession oh. in the past. So um, all of my, like all of my, you know, shameless self-promotion actually has some utility. Absolutely. Oh, good. Good to know. Definitely. Don't, uh, don't slow down on that.